This morning I begin with an excerpt from historian J.B. Lightfoot's book, Apostolic Fathers. In the year 156 A.D., an 86-year-old man was brought before a Roman official and asked to renounce his atheism. He was no atheist by our standards. Rather, he was the devout Christian bishop Polycarp. To the Romans, however, he was an atheist, for he refused to worship the emperor as a god along with the other gods of Rome. Polycarp knew denial would mean a painful death, either being thrown into the arena with a wild animal or burned alive on a pyre. Three times he was questioned, three times invited to renounce his atheism, but no renunciation of Christ would he make. Swear and I release, curse Christ, urged the Roman official. To which Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was not spared. A pyre was built, and he was burned alive. But his words echo down through time to us. Eighty-six years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The church was built on the blood of martyrs. Eleven of the original twelve apostles died the deaths of martyrs. One of them was boiled in oil and left on an island to die. And it's at that time that the apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. But all throughout history, we see, and including the New Testament, people who were uh, given the opportunity to renounce their faith and did not do so. They were on a mission to communicate to the world around them the realities of who Jesus was. This gospel has always offended those who heart, whose hearts are intent on not yielding to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and at this moment is exalted on high with all authority on heaven and on earth. The gospel calls us to admit we need a Savior, that we need forgiveness. It requires humility, and by nature, humankind will push back with all their might. It has always offended, unless God would enable people to believe. And yet we are called to faithfully proclaim it and pray expectantly that many will come to trust in Christ as their Savior. In our day, there are many so-called theological progressives that if you would give them the benefit of the doubt, their heart would be that many would come to hear about Jesus. And so they don't want to offend people and keep them from hearing about Jesus. But many of us who've said, you know, it's, it's important for them to know exactly what Jesus did and who Jesus is. And if that offends people, there's not much we can do about that. We can present it pleasantly. We can talk about it truthfully, but graciously. 
But the bottom line is, is that if the gospel is to be believed, you're going to have to be able to humble yourself and say that Jesus needed to die for your sins. If that's unappetizing, it really doesn't matter how we package it. So oftentimes what some of these so-called new Christian progressives would tell you to do is we've got to change some of what we believe. We've got to make it more appealing. Well, I, I got news for you. This is nothing new. A hundred years ago, when the Protestant church began to fracture in the earliest part of the 20th century, some so-called progressives of that era said the same thing. If we just get rid of the miracles, if we just get rid of the resurrection of Christ, people in this enlightened age won't think we're stupid and they'll, and they'll start coming again to church. And so a hundred years of compromise has done anything but yield a fruitful harvest of people who want to follow Jesus. Quite frankly, what most people know is if that Jesus isn't alive, then why in the world would we sing to him and pray to him? He's dead. He can't hear us. Most people figure that out. If it's about being good and doing good things, why would they need to come to a church on Sunday morning of all times, on daylight saving times, goodness gracious, and then give money? I mean, who in the world needs that? See, that's what happens when you say, you know what, the gospel, the gospel we can just compromise these little things about it and it won't make any, any difference. It'll just make it more appealing to people. It doesn't. It makes it less appealing and, and so today I'm here to talk about this gospel. We are concluding our membership series by talking about the mission of our church. And Prism is committed to being a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are part of a movement of churches, and it's not even just our association. It's a whole conglomeration of new and exciting movements that are bonding together in coalitions to say, you know what, we're going to stand and profess the realities of the Nicene Creed that we believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. We're going to stand there. Prism's particular vision you've heard us talk about is to shine the light of God's grace and love to L.A. San Gabriel Valley and the world, but that word grace is loaded for us because we're talking about a gospel that is undeserved and nothing that we could ever earn. A good news. A good news that says God loves you and if you're willing to humble yourself before him, he's got his arms wide open to receive you. Our particular mission is something that those of you who are going to become members of our church next month are going to have to be able to memorize. And there's a cheat sheet on the back of the sign out front. We're here as a church to revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture. It'll be a fill-in-the-blanks thing. You'll even have the first letter of each blank to give you a cue. Reviving believers, reaching friends, renewing culture. It's important to see our mission doesn't stop with our own excitement about Jesus. We want to know the grace of God in a significant way that would cause us to do as Polycarp, to do as the apostles, to do as the first martyr who we see in the New Testament book of Acts, Stephen, 
go down swinging talking about Jesus, talking to people about the Savior who died for us. And then by virtue of our care for people, people begin to see that this Savior really is alive. Later this week, you'll get a link in your email to an application portion of our website where you can fill out the required information and make your application for membership at PRISM. Before we launch into our passage today about our mission, I wanted to do a quick refresher about why we do membership in the first place. You can hear this by going online and listening to the first of the nine series in this particular message group. And you'll need to if you're going to become a a member. You're going to have to have heard all nine and actually confirm that you've listened to all nine. We want you to be as informed as you conceivably can be. And so this is the way we're going to do it this first time around. Starting next fall, we'll have three membership classes and we'll condense these nine weeks of sermons into three days. Uh, so, you know, in, in the case of this particular sermon, the first one in our series, we explain at length why we do membership. I'll summarize by saying, very simply, it's because it's connected to how we're governed. Uh, we need, in order to have elders who are collectively submitted to, we need to know who wants to be a part of genuine, biblically-driven gospel community, and, and frankly, who doesn't. I'm really happy you're here. If you don't want to be a member at PRISM, that's okay with us. I mean, we want you to be, but it's not like you have to be a member to be here to take communion. But membership in a Christian sense means that you say, I I want you as one of the elders. I want the elders collectively to shepherd me, to pastor me. And if if you don't want that, we kind of sort of need to know. And if you do want that, and I think it's a biblical thing for me to want it, I want my elders to speak into my life. I would expect that anybody who would know the New Testament would say the same. That part of growing as a Christian is is putting things in our lives that will hold us close to Christ. And elders and shepherds are there to care for your soul, and they have to give an account for whether or not they are caring properly for the people who say, I want to be a part of this church. And so, to put it really bluntly, I need to know who I'm responsible for. Brooks, Chris, John Crabb, the four of us elders, we need to kind of sort of know who we're supposed to be praying for. We want that to be you. But if you're still investigating the faith or you're just taking your time and you're really kind of substantively saying, do I really want to be a part of this church community? That's okay. But we do membership because membership is the means by which we discern if believers are the ones teaching our children, if they're the ones leading our ministry and overseeing our church. It's the way we hold our church elders and deacons accountable. And it's the way we make a very clear and distinct and very intentional effort to love the people of this church. We are part of the Acts 29 network. Now, Acts 29 is a diverse global family of church-planting churches, and it's characterized by three things. You can see these on the Acts 29 website. Theological clarity, cultural engagement, and missional innovation. And so I, I bring this up because today we're talking about the melding of our responsibility to be missional and intentional with the reliance upon the Holy Spirit. We do think that God has given us the responsibility to actually do the work of the church, 
to pursue people, to pursue reaching others, to pursue renewing culture. This is human agency and part of the Christian life. So we have in our network a a good number of churches that are committed to the idea that we're going to innovate as far as Scripture will let us. As far as Scripture would not constrain us, we are going to figure out creative ways to communicate with people about who Jesus is. We also would say that Acts 29 stands in the tradition of historic evangelical confessionalism. While we believe as a movement that it's vital that the elders of our church, for instance, determine what are going to be important secondary issues for us and where we stand on issues that are even tertiary to the main points of the gospel, we have as a movement signed up for five very clear, five theologically driven core values. And here they are gospel centrality in all of life. This is a commitment that we make, and we talk about it a lot. It is about not just becoming a Christian and being forgiven for your sins. It's about applying the gospel to every area of my heart, every area of my actual working life. We are committed to the sovereignty of God and the saving of sinners. We talked about that in one of the messages in this series. We are committed to the work of the Holy Spirit for life and ministry. Again, another one of our messages in this membership series. We are committed to the equality of male and female, but at the same time committed to the principle of male servant leadership, which we talked about last week. And then last but certainly not least, we're committed to the local church as the primary mission strategy that God has for the world. Practically, what that means is if you read last week's Pastor Chuck email, which you get if you fill out one of these orange cards, um, and I know you don't want to miss that, um, I, I, sh- I shared a link to a, a fantastic article from the Gospel Coalition about the necessity for planting churches overseas and not just sending missionaries overseas to kind of wander the streets to see who they can save. Our, we're committed to this idea that when we send missionaries overseas, we're going we're gonna to really substantially support them and then encourage them to plant biblically overseen, biblically directed churches. That would be the goal. This is our mission. We are part of a global movement We are a local expression with our own nuances because our context is different than where I came from, where Karen came from, Tallahassee, Florida. It's just different. And so we're going to do church. It's going to manifest culturally differently than where we came from in the deep south. But we're still going to be equivalently committed to the exaltation of Jesus as the Savior of all who would believe. And so let's take a look at the biblical roots of our mission. And I want to delve into some specifics about what shapes how we do mission in our church. And it comes from our passage today in Acts chapter 2. A first point today is this. Our mission is faithful and fruitful gospel communication. This is the heart of our mission. We want to, as they did in the first century, clearly and yet fruitfully, faithfully communicate the gospel. Let me read again the passage. It's verses 36 through 38 of Acts chapter 2. 
let all of this is Peter. Now, mind you, the Apostle Peter addressing on Pentecost the, the people of Jerusalem. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, speaking of Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing, uh, you know, not to critique any one particular church outreach philosophy, but it does not seem at this moment that Peter is all that concerned about being seeker sensitive. Now, I'm all for being culturally clear. I'm all for being careful in what we say so that it's comprehensible to people. But Peter is saying, hey, gang, you crucified him. You were responsible for the death of the Savior now, he's celebrating that he's alive, but these folks remember, this was in real time, they had been a part of the mob that called for Jesus' death. And so when he told them this real truth about their sinfulness, what you see at work here is the Holy Spirit cutting them to the heart. So often, it is the, the thrust of some seeker-sensitive movements that what we don't want people to ever do is feel badly about their sin and i would say one of the great parts of the gospel is when you recognize the holiness of god and your unworthiness to be in it and there's this moment where you think i'm i'm just i'm scared almost i'm, I'm terrified you see it in peter's experience when he realized who Jesus was, he said, go away from me. You see it in the Old Testament with Isaiah when he saw the Lord. He said, I'm undone. There's the sense that God is holy and we're not. And in that moment is when you really appreciate that he's gracious and kind. It's when you really mess up and you see kindness that you realize that this person loves me. This was the case with my father growing up. My dad is recovering, continue to pray for him. I appreciate it. Uh, my dad is Irish Catholic and has like a, a quick temper. He would tell you that himself. And the things that set my father off were the littlest of things. I mean, like you looked at me the wrong way or, you know, you didn't hurry up when I wanted you to leave or something like that would just send him over the edge. But I kind of categorized some of the mistakes I made in my life as doozies, you know, they weren't just the little ones. I did plenty of eye-rolling. But I did some things that were substantial. I hit a pedestrian with my car two weeks after I got my driver's license and almost killed the guy. I, I got my face smashed in one particular weekend out on a drunken night of revelry. And my parents came to the hospital to have me get plastic surgery done to repair this beautiful face you see before you. And... On my 13th birthday, I got drunk at a friend's bar mitzvah and vomited all over the lobby of a hotel. My parents uh, turned gray in my teen years. You can see the pictures. It's a real thing. It's like presidents who start their term looking fresh and vibrant, and then by the end of it, they look like death. 
This was my parents from age 13 to age 18 for me until I found Christ in a real way. And I, and I mention all this because when those big ones happened, I saw a side of my dad that I never saw in the minutia of daily irritation. I saw a dad who was really kind and wanted to know when I called him and said, Dad, I, I hit a pedestrian with my car and almost killed him today. The first words out of his mouth were, are you okay? You see, it isn't until you actually have a sense of your own unworthiness that the value of Christ's grace, the Father's kindness, really means something. And you see this in Peter's teaching. Peter was addressing a culture that was openly hostile to the message that Jesus was Messiah and that he was physically risen from the dead. So what was his approach? Was it to change the nature of the message to accommodate the unbelieving crowd? Quite the contrary. Fresh off being filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, Peter knew his responsibility was to proclaim the truth and leave the changing of hearts to God. The result of his preaching was truly amazing. The church grew from 120 to over 3,000 in a day. Now, if you need scale for that, our church attendance over two services here at Prism is about 120 people. So imagine 24 times that in a day. 24 times the headaches, 24 times the sinful people to bump into each other, 24 times an amazing group of people changed by the grace of God and now needing to be shepherded by the Holy Spirit and by elders and by everybody in the church. Imagine that kind of growth. It's, it's mind-boggling to me. Our hope is that as a church, we do see a fruitful proclamation of the gospel. There's nothing noble, friends, in saying, we just want to be faithful, we don't care, or we're not going to effort at all to endeavor to see our church grow and its impact on our community and souls being rescued and to know Jesus. Many people who come to churches like ours and there are other churches in our community that are in the same stream of thought. They come because they were tired of being a part of a church that was orthodox and correct in all of its doctrine, but passive and apathetic about whether or not people were actually coming to know Christ. The expectation of fruitfulness is something Jesus established. Missional impact. You see it here in our text, Acts 2.41. It says, those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And then in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. But if you go back to Jesus before he was crucified, before he was raised from the dead, before he sent the Holy Spirit to fill Peter and the other disciples so that they could proclaim the gospel with boldness, Jesus says this in John 15, 16, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, the father in my name he may give it to you jesus is the one who said he wanted us to be fruitful then he said to his disciples in matthew chapter 9 verse 38 the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest if jesus didn't expect to change lives and want to do that through us he would have told us to pray to that end. Our mission as a church is akin to what they were doing in the first century, faithful 
and fruitful gospel communication. Our method, on the other hand, is something that may surprise some of you. Our method is healthy and holy gospel community. You say our mission is to do these things, to faithfully communicate, but how are we going to do that? And, and it's by creating environments where we're together, living Christian life together. And you see it here, verses 42 through 45. And speaking of the followers of Jesus, they devoted, the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The thing that sticks out to me in this passage, more than what seems to be for some the poverty mandate that we're supposed to be really generous and giving away our things, that we become so enthralled with Jesus that stuff we have doesn't hold any value to us anymore. And that is critically a fruit of the church. Don't get me wrong. But the thing that stands out most to me as I read this passage is how much of life and spiritual growth takes place in community. This view of life together is something that is easy to avoid, particularly in Los Angeles. I mean, it takes us an hour to get home from work. By the time we get home from work, we're exhausted. We don't really want to go out again. So we just kind of veg on our couches and do that. Or we get involved in some exercise real quick on the way home, and then we come home and sleep and then start all over again. And it's just easy to think, I don't know my neighbors, and you know, I really don't want to go out again. And it becomes inconvenient to do community with each other. But if you look at the, the New Testament, the life of this church was together. And that's why we place such a high priority on knowing each other, why we do things as awkward as it may be to you, like time together. <laughs> because we figure it might actually be helpful to know people at your church. We, we, we also push community groups, not because it's what the church is supposed to do. We want to facilitate community within our congregation. You see, our goal is missional success, but we think the key to being missionally effective is to focus our energy on being healthy instead of on focusing on simply getting bigger. You see, in verses 42 through 46, there were characteristics that marked the church. They were devoted to the study of apostolic teaching, fellowshipping together, eating meals together, praying together. That's why we get together with Jared and the gang once a month and fire start a prayer. It's to pray for our church. We're praying that minimally 15 people will be a part of this by the end of this, by the end of this semester. We know that it's not only critical to the life of our church we also know it's the way that we grow in community you you begin to share real prayer requests i i shared things with that group that i wouldn't share with people just in general i got a prayer request from a friend the other day in that group and said hey how's your dog now i don't know the last time i told you all about you know the health of my dog but that's intimate to me <laughs> you know what i mean because i like him more than most people and so when he's sick you know, it's bothersome to me. Well, see, most people in our church wouldn't know that I was that fascinated with Buddy. Um, the people in that prayer group do. They're getting to know me by virtue of me sharing my life with them. They devoted themselves. You see, the theys, the, 
all of these days, they broke bread together. The fellowship. You see, all of these things are a means of grace. And it's in that context that we begin to be effective in our mission. We begin to challenge each other. It's people within our church that say, hey, you don't think we should start doing some more work for, to help people in, who are in need in our community? And we go, yes, we should. Let's go. See, it's much more fun to do that together. Rick Warren, who I'm actually a huge fan of, something you may not know, and some of my Reformed and Presbyterian brothers aren't quite so gracious. I dig him, and I'll tell you why. Rick is about church health. He never says, well, let's just grow the church big to grow it. Everything I've ever read from him on the subject is, you know, your church isn't going to grow if it's not healthy. So just focus on growth, and then you get what you get. And at least you're healthy. He says this, since the church is a living organism, it's natural for it to grow if it's healthy. The church is a body, not a business. An organism, not an organization. It's alive. Church growth is the natural result of church health. But church health can only occur when our message is biblical and our mission is balanced. You see, we do things together in the full sight of our city in which we live. This is what community life is. And you see it in verses 46 and 47 of our passage. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is why we do renewing culture as a component of our ministry. We want people to see the life of Christ boiling in our community. This is why Jesus said, love one another, and they'll, all, they'll know you're my disciples. See, we can't love one another so that they will see us if we're not in community together. One of the things we also pursue, in addition to healthy gospel community, is holy gospel community. We think that whenever you're involved with something that Jesus is involved with, it is a holy endeavor. So often we think of holiness in terms of moral purity about sex or violations of the Ten Commandments. And be, to be sure, these standards are the holiness of God in part and show forth his attributes and are commanded and we are to obey them. So let's be very clear about that. But a holy pursuit is so much bigger than that. It's, it's beyond description. It is the pursuit of the character and heart of God and then the evolution of our thoughts and actions in such a way that the community at large sees his glory in us and in our community. This is why the Apostle Paul would have written to the Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. This happens in community too. It happens by virtue of our relationships with each other. It happens by virtue of suffering together. It happens by virtue of praying for one another. This is how we are spurred to love God. It's also a holy thing to be involved with the things that Jesus is passionate about, things like justice, things like feeding the poor, things like caring for orphans. And this is why Jesus' brother, James, said what he said. And I'll tell you this. This is a little preview. This is where we're going starting next month. A brand new series. Blood Brothers. 
the bold letters from the blood brothers. We're doing a series on the teachings of Jude and James, the actual half-brothers of Jesus. We're going to walk through their letters to the church. James says this in James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We see the pursuit of, of healthy and holy community, not just being our service so that people see Christ in us, but also working together to trust Christ and obey him and know the joy that comes from that. It requires for us an ability to trust him because being faithful in the face of persecution or being faithful when there doesn't seem to be a lot of fruit is a difficult thing to do. My first year in college, I was so zealous about sharing my faith that I was one of those really, really obnoxious Christians that you don't hang out with. Um, now, you may have one at the office that you acknowledge because you're supposed to, you know, because you figure they're your brother or sister in Christ, but they've got the big stuff on their, you know, on their desks and everything. They're really upfront about it, and people are like, whoa, wow. And so, like, everybody's kind of freaked out by them a little bit. I was one of those cats. My freshman year in college, they had a thing we could do Um, where they allowed the guys in our dorm to paint the wall across from their dorm. It was a concrete block wall. You could paint it anything you wanted, and so everybody on the floor painted like beer cans or something they thought was cool. I painted this gargantuan Jesus (laughs) with a scripture over the top of it, you know? And I'd sit and do my homework with the door shut in my room, and people would come, and they would just mock me. You know, they didn't know I was in the room listening, but they would go, this guy's nuts. And I was a little bit. I was nuts for Jesus. And I, and I matured in my capacity to communicate the gospel effectively and saw more fruit in the years that came behind that. But that, that initial zeal without knowledge, um, there wasn't a lot of fruit. There weren't a lot of people going, hey, tell me more about this Jesus that you paint on the wall. There just weren't a lot of people that were thinking that that was the next step for them. And so... It was a difficult and challenging year for me to stand out. The next year, though, I got a letter from a young woman who I had talked to a number of times about Jesus. She was dating an RA in our dorm. I knew that he wasn't a believer. I knew their relationship wasn't healthy. And she wrote me this terrific letter and said, you know, last year I was on campus and you did, may not know that I never came back. Um, because last summer I I realized that I wasn't following the Lord. And in large part, the reason she she realized she wasn't following the Lord is because there was this crazy guy in her dorm who was following the Lord, and that was me. Who knew that even out of the most bizarro kind of approach to evangelism, that God still produces fruit from that because in my heart, I I wasn't trying to turn people off. I I really hoped people would find Christ. I I had found Christ. I was very excited about it. And I probably didn't go about it. I certainly wouldn't go about it that way any longer. But I'm here to tell you that there may be times in the life of our church and certainly in your own life where you feel like, I don't see a lot of fruitfulness, but our goal is that more and more we would see the Lord working in our midst. And we're seeing that in our church. We're seeing people come to know Christ. 
We're baptizing people. As a matter of fact, next month, if you've not been baptized, you're going to get in this email an opportunity to say, I would like to be baptized next month. On the 10th of April, we're going to do a post-church big blowout fun picnic at the Huskins house, which is our kind of our our family baptismal. It's a great hot tub, and it's much preferable to the freezing waters of a regular pool. And if you've never been baptized before, we would, we would just enjoy the honor of doing that with you because Jesus has commanded it, and if you're a Christian, identifying with him through baptism is required. And these are the things that we are hoping to see come about as a church as we functionally go about our mission to see believers revived in their love for Christ. We want to see believers reach their friends, make friends with people who don't know Jesus and and help them see Jesus clearly and then collectively, both as a church and then all of us individually in our vocations, we're taking part in showing Christ to the world through renewing culture. This is the mission of Prism Church. Let's pray that God would bless it. Father, today we're humbled that you use us in your mission because each one of us knows our own heart to know that uh, like Peter, like Isaiah, like so many, we're cut to the heart and know that we're not worthy to be your children, but you've made us worthy in Christ. You've forgiven us of our sins. You've credited us with his righteousness. You've made us acceptable to yourself by grace. And Father, in addition to that, you have set us on a path to follow Jesus and have the privilege of being your instruments in this world. So we pray with our church fathers who would have said, make us an instrument of your peace. Make us an instrument in your hands. Would you use us, use this church so that others might see clearly who you are and recognize the beauty and truth of the gospel of our Savior Jesus. For we pray it in his name.